Hey, everybody. Welcome to Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and I'm so happy you're here with us. If you're just joining for the first time, I am a special needs mom, a special needs attorney, and a best-selling author. So please grab your coffee. And if you're like me, you might be listening in your car. I spent a lot of time in the car in my day. And please join us for some important discussions to help you thrive in this complex special needs world. Each week, we're going to chat with parents and experts, and sometimes parents who are experts, to offer compassionate advice for all stages of your life. These are the conversations you would have with your best friend if your best friend was an expert like me. Let's go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. So I'm back today with part two of my um, my Autism Wars series. I know that you probably hate that title as much as I do, so don't blame me because to the Today Show blog was the one that named it this. <laughs> it was a great article. It really did a phenomenal job of outlining the topic at hand, which is this kind of seeming, seemingly kind of intractable battle between what autistic self-advocates are, are kind of hurling at parents who are advocating for their children. And there are a couple of different topics that seem to be recurring themes. One is that there are too many parents who put their children's autistic behaviors online. Um, they're too free with posting online without children's ability to consent and that once it's out there, it's out there forever. Then there is another theme of martyr mommy where you are just trying to get sympathy. Oh, look at me, look at me. My life is so awful. I am using my child to get sympathy from the world. Then there's this, you know, next kind of, um, kind of, I guess, explosion of, well, anybody can be like me. So if you are an autistic self-advocate who's out there, you are basically saying that you know, with the right approach and the right therapy, any autistic can, you know, end up like them. And there are, you know, there are multiple sub-themes to all of that. So there's, you know, autism is a spectrum and it's not just in the autism world as I said in my last intro to the podcast, to last last podcast with Carrie Magro, this happens in the ID community, the DD community, um, the blind and deaf and hard of hearing community, 
and many other disability communities. So it isn't restricted to the autism community. This just happened to be an article highlighting the autism community. And as a parent, I always want to be an ally. I want to be in the disability community as a parent ally, as a professional, and as someone who is neurodivergent myself. So I wear a lot of hats. And right now, we are on the cutting edge of a $400 billion government package that is goosebumpy in the way that it can be transformative in our community. We need to come together, people. We really need to come together or this money is going to be wasted. It is not going to be spent well. And let me tell you, there are forces at play here. I don't want to get all gloom and doom on you, but There are forces at play here who will love nothing better than to see us ripping each other apart. So don't let that happen. We need to come together. We need to be allied. So as we go forward, please listen to this interview with Amy Lutz as she talks about what her life is like with her son. She's talking about life with severe autism. She's talking about extreme caregiving. She is talking about the challenges that she faced. And I know from whence she speaks because I faced extreme caregiving too. And her challenges, although a little bit different than mine, there are common themes running through. Um, it, it was it was very significant talking to Amy about her son and her journey. Um, when we chatted about Krista Holman's using the term martyr mommies, I definitely felt the pain of that terminology. Um, you know, when we get to this, cardinal rule that we talk about that requires all of us parents to have extreme optimism when talking about our children's disabilities. It really effectively silences us all and it makes for a very lonely journey. It sends some of us crazy. It sends some of us to very extreme places And we can't do that right now. As I've said on this podcast, why I do this podcast is our stories matter. Our stories matter. That's why we're here. So Amy has two books. Um, The one that she released last year in October is a book of essays. And it is really good. Really good. I, I recommend that you pick it up. Life with her son, Jonah, you may, you may not identify with it. You may identify with it, but you will reflect on it and it will impact you. And it's called We Walk. And I encourage you so much to, um, really 
just think about this idea that the self-advocate community is at war with the severely impacted caregiving community. How could that possibly be? We are all together in this and we are all allied in this. So please listen to this interview and I want to hear from you. Um, continue to talk to me, send me your messages, let me know what you think and join me as we come together in this groundbreaking time period that we are in as we are about to get a, a just an unprecedented amount of spending in our community and we need to come together and figure out how best to implement some new programming, some advanced programming, and some new ideas, some creative ideas to approach the problems that we have, such as housing, employment, recreation, healthcare, basic, basic needs for our communities. And we are on a spectrum. Nothing about us without us. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate and review. It would mean the world to me. This, these programs need to get out to people who are looking for this content and rating and reviewing this podcast is how it gets there. Thank you so much. Here we go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. So I am back this week with another um, another person who I met through the Today Show article on Autism Wars, a topic that is just fascinating to me, and I hate that title, Autism Wars. It really sets me off, and it also sets off my my contributor today, Amy Lutz. So Amy, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Um, so Amy, tell us a little bit about your background. Okay. Um, it's always a tough question because I wear so many hats. But I, I know you do. Well, I tell am... us about your family first. That's usually a busy Five one. children. Uh, the oldest, my oldest son, Jonah, who's 22, is severely autistic. And um, before we, I kind of ended up in the world of autism, I, my background is in writing. So I always thought I would write the great American novel. I was very interested in fiction writing. And then um, I just started writing more and more about issues relating to autism as I kind of got consumed by this world. And now, I mean, I haven't written fiction in a decade and I probably never will. Um, but I do a lot of writing and advocacy uh, about surrounding issues relating to severe autism. And then uh, a few years ago, I decided that I wanted a, uh, you know, a, kind of to do a deeper dive into how we got here in these so-called autism wars, as you mentioned. And I went back to school to get a PhD in the history of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And mm -hmm. I'm finishing my uh, dissertation this year, I hope to defend in May. So 
I'm just very interested in um, the history of autism and other discourse about intellectual and developmental disability. I think that is so cool. <laughs> I really do. And sometime when I have more time, I would love to talk to you about that more because I find that very fascinating. Um, my daughter, Elizabeth, passed away. I was telling you earlier before we hit the record button from mitochondrial disease, which was only like, quote, discovered in 1989, um, but sort of came from other research in muscular dystrophy and just a lot of, uh, there were a lot of interesting twists and turns there. And so I would just love to talk to you about that someday. Anyway, um, this Autism Wars article was so fascinating. And even though my daughter did not have autism, I am in my community, I'm steeped in the autism community and in the disability community. And I can't stand the idea that we're pitting parents against self-advocates and the adult community against the children's community. And I know you feel the same. So let's talk about that, shall we? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I just want to clarify if something I've tried to be more precise in my language recently when, you know, I do a lot of writing and I used to say autistic self-advocates and paint them with a very broad brush. And now I try to be very careful and note that I'm critiquing the positions of some autistic self-advocates. I actually believe that most adults with mild autism probably agree with the position that parents take, that parents are best positioned to make decisions for their severely autistic children, that severe autism looks very different than very mild forms of autism or what we might have called Asperger's before the uh, the DSM-5 got rid of that diagnosis. I think that, that we inhabit, the parents that uh, are my allies in these wars, uh, and have a real common sense position based on our lived experience with severe autism. And I think that most mildly affected adults with autism would, would agree with, with what we say, because nothing we say is that, you know, is everything we say is kind of grounded in common sense, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. But there are some autistic self-advocates who have really embraced autism as an identity. These are the autistic self-advocates who belong to the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, for example. They compare autism to homosexuality. That is a difference, uh, not a disorder. And they really are all in for this concept of neurodiversity, which says which would seem to say something that anybody would agree with, which is just that there is a range of, uh, of presentations based on different, you know, neurological makeups. But uh, then they go further and say that the, you know, neurodiversity is just like, you know, sexuality differences or racial differences, and it's it's an identity issue, not not a profound impairment as it is for my son. So something similar along the lines in the intellectual disability world occurs as well. And that can be very challenging. I one time met an, uh, an advocate who um, at an ARC conference some years ago who said to me, there should never, ever be anyone under guardianship. Yeah. Ever. Yeah, that's Ever. not one person. And it's not just the advocates. I heard that exact same position from the chair of the United Nations Committee on 
on uh, disability, who she got up at one conference and said and compared guardianship to to genital mutilation. This is coming from the United Nations. So I kind of just turned to my son and said, well, Jonah, you have capacity just because the United Nations says it's so when he can't even cross the street, even at 22, without somebody kind of uh, right close by and because he doesn't look very carefully and he never can actually go out in the community by himself or even stay at home alone. Yes, you had mentioned to me that you have an open invitation for self-advocates to come and meet your son, Jonah, so that they can kind of see what, you know, what life is like, but also so, so that they can interact with him and see that you're not, you're not um, squelching his, um, his choices if you will. I mean, the goal of any parent is to raise our children to be independent adults. So this idea that we are somehow just want to, like I said, quelch our children's, you know, autonomy and keep them in our homes forever goes against the dream of every parent everywhere. You know, I would like nothing more than to launch my son the way I've launched a couple of my other kids who have gone on to college, you know, moved out. Um, but he just will never be able to do that. But this backlash against parents is nothing new. It's It's been there for a long time. It's just that we've never had it from the disabled themselves before, right? Well, I mean, being anti-parent is pretty baked into the disability rights agenda going back to the 1960s and 70s in the sense that Um, Disability rights movement is founded by people with sensory disabilities and and physical disabilities, right? Definitely not intellectual disabilities. And so these were um, advocates, a lot of polio survivors, for example, here I'm wearing my, you know, history of medicine hat, Mm -hmm. who they were paralyzed, maybe even they needed access to iron lungs sometimes, but they wanted to go to college, they wanted to work, they wanted to be as independent as possible given their, you know, their physical impairments. And they resented parents who, who it, it was a different era, maybe they were overprotective and scared about what might happen to their blind or paralyzed children out in the world. So maybe they, um, maybe they did try to try to quelch them just a little bit. So parents got painted as being overprotective and and trying to make decisions for their children, for their adult children with disabilities who can make them on their own. And the whole disability rights movement was about empowering disabled adults to make their own decisions and basically have the same opportunities that non-disabled people had in the world. And that model fits very well for people with those kinds of disabilities. But when you have someone with profound intellectual disabilities, that model pretty much falls apart. You know, there's nothing, no support in the world that would empower Jonah to be able to make his own decisions. I mean, he has no abstract language. It's not that he doesn't have abstract words. I mean, he's minimally verbal, so he can talk about um, the things he wants to do and what he wants to eat and where he wants to go, which is always the water park. Um, (laughs) But he can't talk about anything abstract. He doesn't know anything about life or death or the past, present or the future or geography or politics or art or anything like that. And he'll never be able to make an important decision on his own, such as whether he needs a particular medical treatment or where he should live or what kind of day program he should go to or anything like that. 
are you able to pull out any choice from him at all or any directive um, that helps you make some decisions about future planning? Well, of course, we try to empower him to make as many choices as he can. But those choices are like, do you want turkey for lunch or peanut butter? You know, which one? And then we still have to kind of make sure he's um, we're really getting at what he wants because he will so often uh, just pick the first thing in a pair of choices. So we'll flip the order. Um, you know, we'll just ask him a few times to see if we're getting some consistent results and then figure out what it is he really wants. But that's the level of choice. You know, what do you want to do today? Do you want to go to Costco with daddy or for a hike with mom? You know, which one? Whenever you give him a choice, you have to say, which one? He loves that. He finds that very entertaining for some reason. And if we don't say it, He'll look at us expectantly and then he'll just provide it himself. He'll say, which one? And then we, you know, so, um, so he does have some control over the way he spends his time, but there, as far as, you know, future plans, like in the program that he's in, for example, well, I knew he liked it. It was where he went to school and the, this um, organization has an adult program and I knew he loved the school and being able to stay at the adult program was we we're so thrilled that there was space for him there. Um, and just because we knew he was happy there and we were happy with it too. So, but it really wasn't um, a big decision because that was our first choice and we were able to, to make it happen. Wow. Well, I know that um, you mentioned to me that um, we were talking about severe autism and this idea that there's no such thing in Twitterverse. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that. Well, there are lots of fictions that are thrown around in these autism wars that that article referenced. So um, these mildly affected autistic self-advocates that I mentioned, not all of them, but the ones that are embrace autism as an identity come out with all kinds of zingers. Like, and they're the loudest, unfortunately. They are loud, they're organized, and they say things that people want to hear, right? They say, we need to get rid of any large setting larger than four people because that's an institution and everybody wants to live and work in the community. And we don't need any sheltered workshops and we don't need any larger res structured residential settings because everybody with autism or any intellectual and developmental disability can live in their own apartment. That's what they want. And they can have their own competitive minimum wage job. I mean, these, these fictions are preposterous if you've spent any time with an individual with severe cognitive impairment. Um, so yes, clearly yeah. never been punched in the head by one. Exactly. You know, a lot of, but I have yeah, <laughs> your autism involves often is accompanied by a lot of challenging behaviors. I mean, my son had to spend almost a year inpatient when he was nine years old because he was so aggressive and he's medically stable now. So his behaviors are largely uh, you know, controlled through his through medical interventions, but so many families are living in constant crisis because their children's behavior is not stable, and they then the parents are attacked, or the children um, engage in self injurious behaviors. I I just had um, lunch just a week or two ago with a mom whose eleven year old daughter had detached her own retinas and was blind, permanently blinded herself from hitting herself in the face over and over. I mean, this is the degree of 
violent behaviors that children with severely autistic children and adults can exhibit, and they often require really um, exceptional, trained support staff and programs to make keep them safe and happy. It's like you can't even express how horrifying that is, you know, for families, for us to hear, to be listening to this. And then on the other end of things, you have somebody like Krista Holmans who is using terms like martyr mommies, you know, to talk about how we are putting movies and, and pictures up on social media about our kids just to get sympathy. Right. Right. Yeah. And that martyr mommy thing is an interesting term. So yes, as you mentioned, it's been applied to parents like me who write about our severely autistic kids in any light that's not universally accepting and lovely. You know, if we describe right. our kids meltdowns or their challenging behaviors or the fact or, that. Or me, I wrote about yeah. my grief in my book, uh, yeah. you know, uh, uh, and what my life was like with my daughter Elizabeth and how hard it was. And, you know, I mean, it, it's, it, I'm sorry, continue. I get so upset when I hear about things like that, but um, please continue. So, but any mom who writes about their disabled child, so I, I'm just so used to coming at it from the world of autism. So I'm sorry, I don't mean to, um, not to recognize your experience as well, uh, but we're all attacked as being, ableist, that we don't really love our children, that we're just talking about them to get attention to us, this kind of woe is me, um, you know, discourse. But the problem is, you know, and then the kind of the secondary critique is that we are violating our children's privacy because yes. have they per given us permission to write about them in these, you know, in the in these moments? And but of course, children with profound intellectual and developmental disabilities don't have capacity to give consent. So what this really amounts to is what I've called like the most in, invidious kind of censorship. You know, yeah. the children can't give permission to the parents to write about them. Therefore, the parents are not allowed to write about them. That means the story of severe intellectual and developmental disability just doesn't get told. And only those who are mildly affected by it and can speak for themselves, only their story goes into the, the public space. And that means that everybody starts to think that all autism looks like is the good doctor, right? Like the kind of the quirky genius model of autism, because if parents like myself are not allowed to talk about what severe autism looks like, there's no, nobody knows. And I really do believe, and maybe this is naive, this is what this kind of was behind me, the, in, the invitation that I issued that you mentioned to any autistic self-advocate who wanted to come and meet Jonah is that I believe that people just don't know what severe autism looks like, that they hear about autism, maybe they saw Rain Man, maybe they've seen um, the Big Bang Theory and they think of someone, you know, kind of who's quirky, maybe savantish, um, and just have no idea that there are individuals who have to live in helmets and arm stays to keep them from bending their arms because if they are free to do that, they will just whack themselves in the face hundreds of times an hour or that there are individuals who require five people to manage in a meltdown because they're so strong and aggressive when they start attacking people, their parents or their caregivers, it requires five adults to kind of 
keep them, keep everybody safe, or that there are individuals who, if you try to take them out to the community, will kick out the window of the van or will just elope and run away. Um, that these, or that there are individuals who will just eat, they have pica, which means they'll eat, yes. you know, anything that's things that are not edible and that are dangerous. So if you leave, a, you know, some screws around, they're going to eat that or um, have to be supervised every second because they're a threat to themselves or other people. Nobody has that in their imagination. And um, so one of the reasons why I write is basically to shine a light on severe autism so that people who are not stakeholders necessarily in these wars or um, know anything about autism will begin to see that it truly is an enormous spectrum that ranges from people who are indistinguishable from neurotypicals who have graduated from Ivy League institutions and are married and have children and very prominent jobs to people who, adults who are in diapers and have no language and um, and lead very restricted lives. Yeah. I mean, that um, to me really gets to the heart of the isolation that I felt when my kids were growing up, it was so lonely and we didn't have the internet because I'm old, I'm older than you. <laughs> so we didn't have the internet in the same way. Um, um, my daughter, Elizabeth, um, you know, we, we had like sort of things like listservs and stuff, but we weren't sharing in that same way. Um, social wasn't quite the same thing. But it just kind of effectively silences us all, as you were saying, and then it just makes for a very lonely journey, you know, if, we are, if we're not sharing. And then I know for a lot of people, it just, some of us like, you know, kind of disappeared into a bottle and some of us disappeared into depression and some of us sort of overate and you know, some of us just kind of plain disappeared into ourselves. And that, that, um, those parenting years just got really, really tough for a lot of us. And I find it funny that the attack is always on the moms too. You know, it never seems to be on the dads either. And um, there know. are some autism dads who have come under attack for, for, for disclosed, for writing about their autistic children. Um, I just want to say something about the uh, the isolation. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, you know, so many parents, like I said, are living in crisis. They can barely lift their heads up, you know, never mind connect in person with other families. Uh, if your child can't leave the house, then mm-hmm. you're stuck at home. And you almost certainly, if your child has um, really aggressive and self-injurious behavior, your house is probably uh, has a lot of holes in the walls. It's not clean. You don't have time to take care of it. And you definitely don't want anybody coming into your house. Um, so I don't think, I think there's very little that's as isolating as caring for someone with with that, those that degree of challenging behaviors. But I did want to make a quick plug uh, that the National Council on Severe Autism, which I'm the vice president, we, because recognizing that severe autism and any other type of, you know, severe intellectual and developmental disability is so isolating, we're hosting our first cocktail hour. Um, I think it's on September 8th, uh, so next week. And okay. we're just going to, um, it's not a webinar, we're not, we're not, um, we don't have any speakers. We don't have any, um, 
we're not conveying any information, but it really is just an opportunity on Zoom for parents to get together and we're going to break everyone out into smaller rooms and maybe do some drinking games or, you know, tell some stories and a laugh and just connect with other parents. Cause I know that for me, when I meet another mom who's been through what we've been through, it's an instant connection. I always feel, Oh my gosh, we'd be best friends if we live next door. Cause I have great friends here in uh, Pennsylvania where I live, but they just don't get, what, you know, what we've been through and our fears for the future and how much autism takes over our lives and talking to someone who gets it, there's nothing better. There's not, when I come away from those conversations, I just feel so, so nourished and strengthened. So I encourage, you know, any of your listeners who might be in a similar boat to, to register for the cocktail hour. Um, it's, they have to go to the uh, NCS autism uh, website. It's, 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 we're the NCSA, but in our well, website name, the A does double duty. So it's yeah. ncsautism.org and it should be right there on the, on the main page, how to register. We'll definitely put that in our show notes. And that is a fantastic idea. I love that yeah. because again, I just felt like it was so isolating. And like you mentioned, you know, when my kids were little, I could never get out to go to an event. Oh my God. First of all, I never had the nursing care that I needed. And just a plug for the, the um, cares act and the, and the jobs act. I hope we're going to get full funding, but even if we only get partial funding for this $400 billion that we've asked for the money coming down through this is just mind blowing. And we really, if we can, if we can actually focus this towards funding caregivers, a lot of this money is actually going to go to fund care at home and to fund family caregivers. So um, this is really first time in 25 years in my, you know, my career that we've done anything like this. So it's a goosebump moment for sure that we are recognizing family caregiving and valuing it. So let's hope that um, we actually get something done with this money, Um, but it is an outstanding opportunity uh, for our families who are suffering right now. And that brings me to my last topic, extreme caregiving, because... (laughs) This is what I have lived through and you are living through and many of our listeners are living through and a lot of our professionals that listen to this podcast um, and our podcast is international. We have listeners in every corner of the globe. Um, So pretty much everybody understands what I mean by extreme caregiving, but let's talk about that for a second. What is extreme caregiving? So extreme caregiving is not a phrase that I coined. It was, it's the title of a book by a bioethicist named Lisa Freytag. And I found this book to be just hugely helpful in my thinking about um, my experience and, and why I thought um, 
and how it's different from perhaps from, uh, you know, uh, other families experience. So extreme caregiving is just basically what it sounds. It's caregiving that um, she's looking at parents of disabled children for the most part, but that require extra effort. So, you know, like what you were talking about with your daughter, like nursing care, um, you know, round the clock care. And that goes on longer than you might expect a typical like child care trajectory to look like, you know, right. my, oh, my three daughters are off to college. So, you know, they're, um, they're out, but Jonah could be living with us for, for decades still, we have no idea. So extreme caregiving um, describes families like ours, like mine and like yours. And she just, uh, it's a great book. Freytag, you know, all kind of argues recognition that um, kind of the the challenges and the, of extreme caregiving and the supports that families need. And she really, um, she definitely criticizes uh the movement to kind of, you know, shut down the discourse of families and the pressure that families are under to kind of always put a happy face on it. Yeah. You know, you're just not allowed to say anymore, it would be better if my child did not have this disabilities. It's just, you know, disability has become so political um, that you're not allowed to even suggest that it, a life might be better if without these really significant disabilities our kids have, even though I really believe it's true. And if I could, you know, cure my son of his severe autism, I would do it in a second. Um, it's just, uh, I mean, I wouldn't even have to think about it because there's so many things he's never going to be able to do. Um, he's never going to drive or have a job or get married or have children. And he's going to be profoundly dependent his whole life. And I think most of the people who are arguing that disability, there's nothing wrong with disability. It's just that, you know, society is not accommodating people with disabilities and we need to change the built environment uh, to better support people with disabilities. That that's, that's one kind of disability. Um, as I said, there's, there's no supports that we could put in place that would give Jonah autonomy over his life. Um, so the disc, so we need to kind of keep it real, you know, yeah. that, um, it, we are engaged in extreme caregiving. Our children are profoundly disabled and our families live in crisis a lot of the time. And we need, uh, you know, more, so many more different, you know, different types of supports right. to, for our, our families, our kids and our families to, have the best quality of life we can offer them. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it's amazing to me that the disability rights movement was so long ago, but in so many ways we haven't come very far and that the movement doesn't see parents and even siblings as allies, really, you know, well, I think they see, they see parents and siblings as allies and some, if they're willing to just kind of toe the line and let the people, the disabled people call the shots, right? We are allies and, you know, you know, subordinate allies. But I mean, I just want to challenge. I do think that people with disability, the disability rights movement has accomplished a lot. Of course. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's basically, I don't know, um, 50 years old. And instead of, Children being warehoused in Willowbrook mm -hmm. now. Lots of people with disabilities have incredible opportunities. We have the ADA, we have IDEA, we have um, 
guaranteed education. We have lots of, you know, support in, it, in the workplace, but it's just that the disability rights model pretty much falls at which it, which basically says there's nothing wrong with the individual. The problem is in a disabling environment. And that makes sense for um, someone in a wheelchair, for example, is going to be significantly more disabled in a town with no curb cuts or elevators or ramps. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see how changing the built environment would really facilitate, you know, interaction and engagement in the community for that person in a wheelchair. But for people with severe autism and other significant intellectual and developmental disabilities, that social model of disability falls apart. And we need to have room for what is termed the medical model of disability, which is there's something wrong with my son's brain. Okay. And uh, he needs, he's going to need significant support. And if we can keep um, other future children from suffering from this degree of impairment, we absolutely should do that. Um, And research needs to reckon with not only how do we treat you know, behaviors and other kind of comorbid conditions in this population. Um, but how do we, how do we understand how, you know, what causes autism, how to prevent it in the future, um, especially in its more severe manifestations? Yes. And don't you think that if we stayed true to a person-centered planning model that we wouldn't really be having these issues at all? It's crazy, right? So I think that the mantra of the like my personal mantra in terms of advocacy and which I believe is, is um, echoed in the, and reflected in the national council on severe autism. It's yeah. just a matter. Everything is boils down to choice. We argue for greater choice in uh, you know, in educational settings, residential settings, vocational settings, you know, just, we need a whole continuum of care right. from individual apartments in the middle of, Philadelphia, where I live, to um, like farm communities, like the Camp Hill community, which is I love whatever, it. dozens yeah. of people with intellectual disabilities live co-housing with, you know, people from all over the world who are interested Camp in that Hill model. Camp Hill is amazing. We have one yeah. in New York. So that we need it all because people should have choice. And for some reason, these inclusion advocates they claim they're advocating for choice, but really they're only advocating for one model for everybody on the autism spectrum from the well, most not everybody, to but the, some, yeah. That that's not everybody in the disability community. It's like just a certain set of people. Right, right. What I'm saying is that these, the, these inclusion advocates are pushing this one size fits all model where everybody gets their, their own apartment and their own competitive minimum wage job. And that doesn't fit. And they hold up these few examples of people who have been able to achieve or go to college or whatever. And they say, CCC, here are the people who've done it. Yeah. But they don't show the thousand kids behind them who haven't been able to do that. It it is um, troubling. So, I I mean, people without disabilities have those choices, right? My mom lived in a a senior gated community for seniors in Florida. Nobody threatened to take away her social security benefits, (laughs) right? So why can't Jonah live in a gated community for people with intellectual disabilities? Like, why is that somehow? That's an institution, but like a plush, you know, senior community in Florida is, you know, just has a hundred people long wait list, you know? So it's, it's kind of crazy that, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are the only population in this country besides registered sex offenders who can't live and work where and with whom they choose. Well, I think we're 
re-examining that though. There are a few communities that are sort of getting waivers and popping up in a couple of places. We have some, we have one, we have one. Yeah, it really depends on what state you're in. So in Pennsylvania, where I live, you're not allowed to build any kind of residential setting larger than four people, even though CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has come out and said, there's no magic number, you know, above which where something is an institution and below which whether it's not, you know, you have to look at outcomes, you have to look at lots of details about the settings. Um, but still, Pennsylvania states are allowed to be more restrictive than the federal government requires, and my state is amongst the most restrictive. So I am watching communities going up in New Jersey and California and Arkansas and Ohio, all over the place. And I'm hoping that as these communities get traction, they start demonstrating outcomes that in, will take them to, you know, our Office of Developmental Programs in Pennsylvania and say, see, look, you know, there is, this is working. Families, individuals and families are loving this. And it's not an institution. It looks nothing like Willowbrook or Pennhurst. It's just, you know, it's a community of people with intellectual disabilities who love to spend their time, you know, working on a farm or who want to spend their time, you know, doing, you know, art and other kinds of, or, you know, and spending a lot of time walking or walking and doing other kinds of exercise and swimming and so forth. You know, there's, there should be different options to reflect the very diverse needs and preferences of this population. Not everybody wants or needs the same thing. I could talk to you about this for days. Um, I'm really excited for your new book coming out though. What made you decide to change your style a little bit and um, put out a book of essays? Well, this book is actually came out last year. It's almost a year oh, old. It's I, almost a year old. I thought it was just coming out. No, I just sent you the galley just because it was oh, easiest to I see that way. Okay. It came out in October. Um, yeah, it's called We Walk, Life with Severe Autism. And I'm so proud of that book. Um, it was based on, you know, I've written a lot of small, short essays in uh, published in my blog at Psychology Today or in Slate or other types of uh, platforms. And so I took some of those that I wanted to really go into more detail um, and really kind of unpack those arguments with more in more space. And so there are essays about, um, about religion, like about my experience mm -hmm. having a joint B'nai Mitzvah. That's, if you're not Jewish, that's yeah. a bar mitzvah and a bat mitzvah. So I had never been bat mitzvah. Jonah had never been bar mitzvah. And we had a joint ceremony. And I wrote an essay about my thoughts about religion for people with severe intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, there's one about kind of some of the terminology in this in these wars people are fighting over. Yes. And this one about what friendship might mean for my son, who is very attached to people in his life, but mostly besides family, paid caregivers, not not peers. Um, yeah, very interesting so I kind of dive into those um, so, um, some of Some of it was hard to read, you know, and goosebumpy for sure. And um, definitely the religion one really really struck me. Um, I remembered being at, uh, my, my daughter, my, my daughter's friend Rosie's, uh, celebration. And it was very different than the typical one. Cause I had been to a more traditional one, which was like a big 
wedding event, you know, um, but Rosie's had to be a little bit different because of her autism. And I, you know, it really made me reflect on the differences and, but how nice that her family could still have a celebration. And some of the things that Rosie liked about it and that she did was much more of getting into the actual religious aspects of it and less of the whole party end of it. And it was so, um, it was very nice. Uh, Your writing is beautiful. I I really enjoy it. Thank you so much. Like I said, that was my background. And so um, I'm just glad that I have the opportunity to kind of, write about uh, these issues in a way that other that is really resonated for other parents. So I, you know, who, and it really makes me happy that it resonated for you, even though your daughter wasn't autistic, just the idea that um, some of the experiences of raising children with profound intellectual and developmental disabilities, it's, you know, it's, they're common, you know, the experience. Oh, yes. Yeah. Total crossover moments for sure. And even though my daughter is not here any longer, uh, there's still crossover moments. And what I really like about having a set of essays is that it's a set of topics and you can sort of pick up and read pieces of it when you want to think about or, or sort of feel through something that you're, you know, you're wanting to kind of experience in that moment. And it's not a book that you kind of need to read straight through. So it it was really cool to be able to do that. Uh, Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't realize it had already been out. So now I have to go and do a nice review for you. So (laughs) I'm going to do that. (laughs) Oh, I would appreciate that. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, well, audience, now that I know that it's out and it's not coming out next month, I'm going <laughs> to encourage you to go ahead and go and get the book because it is fantastic. And we will have links in the show notes. Um, great. Thank really, you so much. Really great. And and we'll also be able to connect you to Amy. Her writing is fantastic. And she is a mommy extraordinaire. Um, and your son is so lucky to have you. He really is. And we are lucky to have you on our side in the disability community because we need to have all voices heard. We really do. Thank you. You know, I've been very privileged to, um, that we have enough support that has allowed me to, you know, to write, to go back to school, to go speak at conferences and stuff. Because like, as we talked about, many families don't have the support. Um, They're isolated, even if sometimes even parents who have waivers, they can't actually get staff to fill those hours because their children's behavior is so severe and the money that's being paid is so minimal that, uh, you know, there, why would you work with a kid like ours if you could get a job at Starbucks for the same money, you know? So, yeah, um, well, we're hopeful yeah. that this new money coming down is going to be able to pay people a much better wage. It's going to go to training and bonuses and um, also provide people with benefits and the kinds of things that people need to be valued in this caregiving experience. Um, and to be able to provide continuity of care as well. So I know I'm kind of pipe dreaming here, but it's finally, hopefully going to be enough money. Of course, every state's going to have to sign on to whatever programs, you know, are being offered, but um, man, at least we have a chance at this point of Um, trying to get some funding. 
you know, I'm not sure if the the Better Jobs Act will do this, but I do believe that if there's one cause that should unite the entire, not only the entire autism community, but also um, the communities of other intellectual and developmental disabilities, it's the idea that we need to solve this DSP, the direct service provider crisis that um, I know for my son, the the number one thing that will ensure him leading like a joyous life is to have really qualified, enthusiastic, you know, great caregivers who have a calling to work with this population. And so I do a lot of, you know, advocacy around this topic. Fantastic. What is the one or two thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with as we are getting ready to sign off today? We talked about so many things. I know. Well, I'm, I don't know if you, I mean, if your audience is mostly parents who have significantly disabled children, I don't need to tell them anything that they don't already know. Um, We have a wide, diverse audience of professionals, siblings, individuals themselves, and parent caregivers. I would say the one thing that if you are not living this life and that I would want you to take away is just that severe autism and other types of significant intellectual and developmental disability is different from the mild, the mild Aspergery type of autism that's really featured in, in the media right now. And, and we, our families need, our children need um, often intensive disability specific services and supports that those on the other end of the spectrum don't need, but we need to preserve a continuum of care and embrace the humanity of everybody with a disability or not. And support parents in doing, you know, in supporting their own children, because none of us are doing this for, for the money, for the glory, you know, I would give it all up in a second, the books, the articles, even, you know, these great conversations, if my son could just lead kind of a typical life. Um, And I'm not going to stop fighting for him to maximize his quality of life, even in the face of attacks from people who tell me I shouldn't be talking about him. And, uh, you know, I guess I just want everyone to, to realize why we're doing this and support us in our projects. Yeah, Amy, I'm so sorry that you experience any attacks at all. You're amazing. And I have to say what I wouldn't give to have my Elizabeth back here with me. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's no, no doubt that I would have cured her her disability in a heartbeat because it took her life. It took her from us. So um, there's no accepting that. Let me tell you. So um, we're here and we're talking about this and um, it, it, it's the stories are important. I did uh, several episodes over the last two years of this podcast on the importance of telling our stories So no need to go into that again, because, um, you know, it's pretty obvious and I'm sure I'll do another episode on the importance of our stories. So thank you so much, Amy. You're incredible. And I really appreciate you being here with us today. Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to tell my story and Jonah's story, because, you know, you can tell the stories as much as you want to, but without platforms to distribute those stories to people, you're just kind of talking into a void sometimes. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Well, I hope you have a great afternoon, good weekend, and I will be seeing you around. Bye now. 
Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.